It's something I get asked about a lot, and I have been over the years a lot. It's like, oh, predict the future. What's it going to look like in the year 2000? I remember I remember when um, people said to us, well, what, what will happen when there are a grand total of 10,000 pieces of malware? How will antivirus software cope that? And today, we see hundreds of thousands of new pieces of malware every single day, every 24 hours. There's more than two every second which are created. It's, you know, astonishing. The problem has just escalated so far, and we would never have predicted that. And we would never have predicted that nation states would have been hacking into organizations or writing malware or stealing from banks in order to fund their nuclear weapons program, which I read about this week um, with, with uh, North Korea. It, it's, you know, it, it, it's absolute science fiction what's happening now. So to predict what's going to happen next feels utterly bonkers. All I can say is more of the same. From Cobalt at home and on a farm, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My guest today, joining me from a sheep farm, although it is not his sheep farm, is Graham <laughs> Cluley, who is well known in our industry as an award-winning security blogger, speaker, researcher, and podcaster. Super fun to have a podcaster on the show. Graham's worked in senior roles at Sophos and McAfee. He's helped law enforcement agencies investigate hacking groups. He's also in the Info Security Europe Hall of Fame. Graham, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So, Graham, what is it like to be a podcaster on someone else's <laughs> podcast? <laughs> it's fantastic. And you know why it's fantastic? Because I don't have to do any of the editing. Um, I, <laughs> I don't have Thank to you, Mary. Up. We appreciate you. <laughs> oh, what? You what? You don't, don't edit do it yourself? I don't, I don't edit it <gasps> myself. I used to. I used to. And I actually will say it is an activity that I enjoy very, very much. I um, have to be honest with you. Mm. I actually love editing as well. I, lo I probably love editing the podcast more than anything else. The only problem with editing is just how long it takes. The number of nights I've been up till three o'clock in the morning trying to make something sound right. It is fun, though. It's fun. It's the art. I think that there is more room for art and creativity in our field. And podcast editing yeah. gives us a little bit of that. Yeah, well, I don't know if the podcast I put out is a masterpiece. What we try to do on Smashing Security is we we, we, we try to make it accessible to anyone, you know, including the non-nerds. Um, so we're, we're trying to make it interesting. We're trying to make it fun. And we have fantastic guests on. And sometimes they'll be telling us a story and they get a little bit confused or muddled or they use the wrong word. And we think, oh, that would have been so much. But if they'd just said that sentence 30 seconds earlier, it all would have flowed so much better. And then I'll let you into a little secret. We sort of move the occasional bit around. <gasps> I, know, Graham. I know. Fake news. Fake My news. My goodness. My You've got an exclusive goodness. here now. <laughs> Tampering with the witness is what I'm hearing about. No, seriously though, Graham, I, I think that I think that what you and Smashing Security do is provide a really important service to the world because oh. if security is something that only nerds can talk about we are never going to solve this. We're doomed. Yeah, Absolutely. we're doomed. Because everyone Absolutely. has a computer in their pocket, right? Everyone's doing online shopping. Everyone's 
capable of being fished. And, you know, it's it's regular individuals who are in the workplace or working from home who are making decisions about what link to click on or whether to enter their password here or what their password should be. So we, we're all really, we, we all have to be security savvy, whether we yes. like it or not. Deb. That's absolutely right. My father-in-law called me the other day and he said to me, Caroline, my computer's not working and I'm on the phone right now with someone who's insisting that I pay him money. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, this is just so, this was in 2021. And I thought this is so 2021, you know, despite the fact that actually the first ransomware attack happened in 1989. Graham, this podcast is supposed to be about you. Tell me (laughs) about you. How long have you been working in cybersecurity? Oh my goodness. Can you believe this? Is, I've just celebrated my 30th year in cybersecurity. I love it. That's badass. That well, is... No, is, is it? Is it? Yes, yes I just is. think I haven't found something better to do. I mean, <laughs> is should... there anything better to do yes, than work yes, in cybersecurity? I yes. don't know. How has that sheep farm thing been going? Have you been looking over at the shearing uh-huh. and thinking maybe I should do that instead? <laughs> I'm not quite manly enough to, to <laughs> shear a sheep, sadly. I don't think I'd be. A, they're pretty tough, these sheep. No, the, the sheep don't belong to me. Um, the farmer lets me live on his farm, which is very kind of him. But it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just think, you know, it, it's a long time to do anything, really. It's, I mean, when I look back over my career, I think, well, what have I really done? All I've really done is tell people turn on two-factor authentication and choose a sensible password. Um, it's... <laughs> I mean, does it really come down to anything more than that? There may have been a little bit more besides that, but it's a strange thing to base a career upon, I think. I think our careers and our lives, they are all so meaningful and then also trivial. I read a book (laughs) last year called 4,000 Weeks, and this year I will actually pass the 2,000-week mark, and I and I get to think to myself, uh, what will I do with my remaining yeah. 2,000 weeks? Graham, tell me if the past 30 years has <laughs> been people, please use two-factor authentication. Let me <laughs> teach you about what a strong password is and then also password manager because I understand you have 100 plus accounts. What will the next 30 years look like for this industry? Oh, you know, that it's something I get asked about a lot. And I, I have been over the years a lot. It's like, oh, predict the future. What's it going to look like in the year 2000? I remember, I remember that when um, uh, p- people said to us, well, what, what will happen when there are a grand total of 10,000 pieces of malware? How will antivirus software cope with that? And today we see hundreds of thousands of new pieces of malware every single day, every 24 hours. There's more than two every second which are created. It's, you know, astonishing. The problem has just escalated so far, and we would never have predicted that. And we would never have predicted that nation states would be hacking into organisations or writing malware or stealing from banks in order to fund their nuclear weapons programme, which I read about this week. Um, with, with uh, North Korea, it, it's you know it, it, it's absolute science fiction what's happening now. So to predict what's going to happen next feels utterly bonkers. All I can say is more of the same. Mm-hmm. We're, the, you know the fundamental problems I think will carry on existing. The fundamental yes. problems of how uh, hackers break into systems, how they trick people, the social engineering tricks, things like social engineering. 
that's not going to change because humans aren't going to change. And it's not a technological problem. It's a human problem. And so those sort of attacks, they may be dressed up in other ways. And they may sometimes involve new types of technology, some of which, you know, we may not have even imagined yet. But fundamentally, they remain the same. As for the rest of it, Lord knows, you know, things, things have changed so much. And this whole cybersecurity, when I started in, uh, I, I started off by writing um, antivirus software. And uh, back in those days, there were 200 new viruses every month. And it was a bit of a cottage industry. And, and most of the people I spoke to didn't really believe that viruses and malware existed. They were still peddling the old, you know, conspiracy theory, or you guys must write the viruses, you know, you must do this to drum up sales and all that, you know, they sort of say it cheekily, but they sort of half believed it as well. And um, now no one feels like that. Because everyone knows that malware exists, and they know there's so much of it, that there's no way the cybersecurity vendors could be churning it out, it has to be has to be criminals who are doing it instead. Now, Graham, I've got a question for you mm. about and antivirus software. Today, there are vendors, and they and they call themselves next gen. Yeah. And what do you think about this next gen? Well, it depends what they really I mean, sometimes they say next generation, it isn't really, it's just the marketing people putting a fun spin on it. I mean, it's amazing how sophisticated some of the old antivirus programs used to be. It's just that their marketing was rather primitive. Um, and they weren't always extolling its virtues properly. I mean, the, the, the truth is that uh, anti-malware protection has continued to evolve year after year after year. And most of the antivirus products out there are pretty darn good these days. Although, although there's no such thing as a perfect antivirus, there's nothing which is going to stop absolutely everything and never make a mistake. They're generally doing a really good job especially if they're being kept up to date. And, and, and antivirus software as well these days, modern antivirus software, does a reasonably good job at stopping brand new unknown stuff as well by looking at things like behavior, for instance. Well, as we've seen new threats like ransomware emerge, they can look for that sort of suspicious behavior of a, a program accessing lots of files and trying to encrypt them. And it can say, oh, hang on a moment. That seems a little bit fishy. Um, maybe we want to pop up a warning and prevent that from happening anymore. Yes. You know, it seems as though there have been years and years now of refinement and evolution and continuing sophistication. And to me, that might be thought of as an easier problem to solve than making something like this for the first time. You worked on the first ever version of Dr. Solomon's antivirus toolkit for Windows. What was it like then? What was it like when people some people didn't even believe that the problem you were trying to <laughs> solve was a real one. How do you go from zero to one in was, a technology yeah. like that? It, it, it wasn't always easy. I mean, on a practical level, writing the first version of Dr. Solomon's Antivirus Toolkit for Windows was a real challenge because I was having to write it on Windows 3.0. And if you're old enough to remember that, you'll remember the, the general protection faults and the blue screens of death and you know, the, the, soft, the operating system would continually crash as you were trying to write things. So that, that was a challenge. And many people were sceptical of the idea of uh, running an antivirus on Windows anyway, because the, the thought at the time was, well, you should always, if you're scanning for viruses, you should boot up from a floppy disk, which is write protected, boot up into DOS, 
and scan that way. That way, you know, nothing else is running beforehand. But, you know, these days, computers don't have a floppy disk drive. In fact, they probably haven't had them for 20 odd years. Um, so that's not an option. One of the funny things was back then writing for Windows. The reason why I got that job writing the Windows antivirus, I, I went for my interview with Alan Solomon at Dr. Solomon's, which was the company I was working with. And, and Alan Solomon said, I'm going to make you the Windows program. And I said, look, I, I said, that's very kind of you. I said, but I've never written a Windows program in my life. And he said, it doesn't matter. He said, no one's going to buy uh, the Windows version of Dr. Solomon's. Um, <laughs> He said, we're just doing it for marketing. He said, um, he said, I, he said, I'm going to write the OS2 version. All the businesses are going to want the OS2 version because Windows was considered a joke as an operating system. It was like a little fluffy thing you might have. Oh, how cute. They've done a Windows version. But it was thought at the time that businesses and serious businesses like banks would be running OS2 instead. And as we know, OS2 died. Um, and Windows succeeded, which meant, oh, crikey, people really are going to be running my software. I better make sure that it's actually doing a good job at finding the viruses as well. So, it, you know, it, it was a bit of a Wild West back then. I have to say it was huge fun, probably more fun than it is now, because it was more of a battle of wits, I think, then between the virus writers and the antivirus guys way back then. Interestingly, the virus writers, they took a lot more care. Um, regarding their work, there's a lot more pride. They would spend months and months writing a piece of code which they thought would be undetectable by an antivirus program. Whereas now, most of the malware writing is just sort of conveyor belt. It's just churned out huge numbers every day, just trying to infect a small number of people, and then they write another one, and then they write another one, or they have programs which do it for them. Whereas there used to be more of an art to it um, than there is today. And um, I, I, I kind of miss that in a way. I think there was, it, it, it was a more sophisticated time in, a, in, in some ways. Not to say, of course, that there aren't sometimes extremely sophisticated pieces of malware being written today. Sometimes even, as we've discussed, by uh, countries who might be involved in state-sponsored hacking. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, to ponder that. You know, I think at this stage, we can think of the viruses of old times almost as being romantic in a way. I think there's a way in which, you know, we can think of those folks uh, today who might be considered cyber criminals, you know, to be very clever. I think there's always been this really interesting thing from my perspective about the good folks and the bad folks. Yeah. You know, and I think there's an assumption that folks like you and I, Graham, are the good ones. But what is that all about? You know, I'm getting a little too philosophical. I actually want to talk about more um, kind of current events, if you will. Um, okay. Of course, at this point in time, the most popular malware, it seems, the most successful is ransomware. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on ransomware? Well, it, it is a huge danger to companies because what the bad guys have found is a way to properly monetize malware and that's why there's so much ransomware out there is because other gangs other criminals realized crikey we can make a huge amount of money here um, with relatively little chance of being caught and it, it's worked extremely well for them in, in the past there were ways of monetizing malware one of the ways might for instance be to convert your computer into a bot and then they will use they would 
they'll take over your computer and then they will rent out your computer maybe as part of a, a denial of service botnet or maybe as a spam botnet and they'd be able to make some money that way you know that's one of the common things we used to see malware doing and that would just make you know a small amount of money for each pc that's infected but with ransomware they can make literally tens of millions hundreds of millions from ransomware huge huge amounts of money is being made and as a consequence we see traditional crime gangs realizing well hang on a moment we don't need to go and rob banks anymore we don't need to kidnap people which is all rather dangerous and you know increases <laughs> there's a physical risk to us why don't we get into this cyber crime thing instead so I think what we've seen is a huge rush of criminals getting involved in ransomware. And this huge, this ecosystem has grown up over time, where it's not just the people who are engaged in ransomware, but also people who are offering ransomware as a service. So even if you're just a, you know, a tin pot little criminal who don't have the, maybe don't even have the resources to code a piece of malware, but you can go on the internet you can find these gangs and you say, well, could I rent part of your ransomware from you? Because there's a company I'd like to extort and I'll give you 15% of the money and I'll keep the rest of it myself. And so there, there's all this infrastructure now involved in making ransomware as a, a, as a tool, as something to hit companies with, available to really anybody at all. So if yeah. you did have a criminal bent, what, you know, it's understandable people getting involved in it. Yeah, it's really, it's really quite brilliant. You know, I'm thinking to myself, I could use a little cash on the side. You know, maybe I should be looking into it myself. You know, but of course, there's someone who is a traditional criminal. There is someone who maybe is curious and wants to experience firsthand yeah. the economics of running ransomware. And then we have these state-sponsored cyber right. criminals. Graham, what do we need to know about the state-sponsored ones? It sounds so scary. It sounds scary, doesn't it? And I, I think for some large organizations, it is possibly something that they're worried about. My advice generally is you shouldn't lose too much sleep about a country attacking you or using its state-sponsored hackers to attack you because if they really are determined to get in, they are going to get in. And I think you should probably spend more effort trying to deflect the attacks from the regular criminal gangs rather than, for instance, a group who are supported by the Chinese People's Liberation Army or the North Koreans. Because if, if they really want to hack into your company and gain access to your data or gain access to your customers, they are going to perhaps have a zero day up their sleeve which they can try and exploit to infect you. They, they may also do reconnaissance on your business and find out what you're relying upon and try and find the weak points. But they can go further than that. They would have no qualms, and they certainly have the budget to plant a person inside your company if yep. they really want to. Yep. Or to offer someone inside your company a huge amount of money. And we've seen cases where this has happened. There's a well-known uh, US car manufacturer, and one of their employees was approached by a, a Russian criminal and offered x million dollars to plant a piece of ransomware on their production line because they you know and, and thankfully that employee was an honest chap and went to his bosses and said uh <laughs> this has just happened and they were able to catch 
the person who was trying to tempt him. But so, you know, but the, those sort of attacks are possible. And frankly, what can you do? Because if they're an employee or if they've bribed one of your employees, they're people you've already given your passwords to. They're already people who are comfortable using your network or coming into the office and logging in. And there's not a huge amount you can do if those people are really determined to cause trouble. I, I, my general opinion is that for most people, maybe not governments and maybe not some other bodies, but for most people, don't worry too much about them. Instead, worry about the regular criminal attacks, phishing attacks, worry about uh, regular ransomware, worry about business email compromise, those sort of things. It, I think it's more important to try and get those dealt with and be hardened against those attacks rather than zero day vulnerabilities and APTs and that sort of stuff. Yes, I, I like that advice very much. Um, I do think that consumers and individuals have an opportunity to really focus on the basics um, and all of the fancier, more yeah. sophisticated stuff is really so much more outside of your control. Um, but there is a lot that you can control, you know, and, and there, is, there is an opportunity to focus on, mm. well, what is it exactly that you can control? Now, you brought up this concept of insider threat, and I think this is very, very interesting, mm. you know, particularly in never-ending pandemic time, which we currently live in, uh, which also involves a lot more of us working <coughs> remotely. So, Graham, how does this happen? Is it, is it, do you think, more often the bribe type of scenario that you described? You know, a, an employee gets called up by the bad folks and offered a lot of money to <laughs> install some malware, steal some information, whatever. Or do you think it's more often that the bad folks are posing? as legitimate employees. Yeah, I think it, it's not so common the bribe scenario is, is my feeling. I think for as long as criminals are able to exploit human weakness and the social engineering challenges, for instance, the ability to dupe people, I think they are, they're much more inclined to go that way than saying, here's a million dollars, will you do something for us? So I, I, I think the normal ways in which the criminals get in is it might be, for instance, something is poorly configured on your network. You may have a web bucket of information, for instance, which is exposed to the outside world where you don't have sufficient security controls in. And so they're able to access it and steal that data and then offer it for auction um, up online. It may be that your users have chosen passwords, which are easy to crack, or maybe or the biggest problem is actually reused passwords where you're using the same password for multiple things. Um, and so as a consequence, if your employee gets hacked in one place, if there's a data breach in one place, then the hackers will try and reuse that password to see what else it might open up and, and gain access to. So it's really about strengthening the security of your users in terms of, okay, Let's make sure there's a proper password policy in place. Let's make sure they're not using the same password everywhere and that the password isn't a dictionary word, isn't easy to guess. Uh, I mean, I use a password manager. I, I have over, I, I did count the other day, I have over 1,200 different passwords 
and they're all gobbledygook. And I would, you could take a crowbar to me, and I wouldn't be able to tell you what my email password is or what my Twitter password is, um, because I simply don't know it. All I know is the master password for my password manager, um, which I've memorized. But the the rest of them are just gibberish to me. Um, so you sh- you need different passwords for different things, and you need to train up your employees. Um, to be more suspicious, I'm afraid. It's sad that we have to be more skeptical in this world, but I think that's the kind of world we live in now where we're exposed to so many people from, uh, rather than those people we work with directly inside the office, you know, you're exposed to the entire internet and anyone might drop you an email or phone you up or even show up in front of your desk claiming to work for the IT team and asking, can you verify your password or um can, can you give me this information? And before you know it, the hackers have gained access to some internal resource. And there's all kinds of ways in which they do this. But that, that's the most common kind of technique which is being used, I think, is just simple mistakes are being made. Up, security updates aren't being rolled out. Patches aren't necessarily being put in place. And staff, you're not applying the patch to people's brain, which means that they don't <laughs> click on the dodgy links. They open the dodgy attachments (laughs) or or they're choosing poor passwords. And so the hackers are able to gain access and then pretend to be that employee or gain access to everything that employee can access. Yes. Yeah, we we have not figured out authentication. I don't know if we will ever figure out authentication. Graham, I have another thing that I want to ask you about, which is IoT. I, for one, mm. am not interested in having a smart refrigerator or a smart toaster or even smart lighting or anything like that oh, in wonderful. my home. You know, we are now living in the age of drones and sort of like smart everything. What What are your thoughts on these? Well, I gave you a hint as to how old I was earlier by the fact that I've been working in this industry for 30 years. So you can probably imagine I'm quite a curmudgeon. Um, and I similarly think, well, why, why do you need that? Why do you need an internet-connected toothbrush? Why do you need uh, a web-enabled fridge? Or why do you need devices in your living room which are constantly listening to you? Well, you know, I just, I do not see the need. I just think some people have a, either have a surplus of money or they have an absence of uh, frugality and common sense I just think, well, what, what, are you really going to use it it's <laughs> so I, I I think um I think sometimes people who work in this industry in particular um kind of love technology and they love the things it can do but really does it improve your life that much you know to pay a subscription or to put all your data up in the cloud or to webcam your house I, I I'm rather more skeptical about it so I'm I'm already a curmudgeon about it and then you bring in the fact that all these devices are manufactured cheaply um, by vendors you've never heard of for whom the last thing they sometimes care about is security and privacy in fact in case of some devices part of the monetization is actually well what can we do with this data so you don't know where these devices come from sometimes Um, so it's it's crazy you know it's just bells and whistles isn't it it's it's um but then you know i'm in my 50s you know so i you know maybe if you if i was in my 20s i would be thinking oh yeah this is so cool but um but for me it's not for me 
And I, I, I do worry about the poor security of many of these devices, which do then get exploited, either for spying on people or launching DDoS attacks um, and other crimes as well. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I'll be 39 this year. I also don't have an interest in it. I think the closest <laughs> thing that I can have to understanding why people are interested is just consumerism. You know, just believing that if I buy something, I'll be happy. Graham, we are coming to an end for the time that we've got today. And I've got a very interesting question for you, which is Ooh. tell us, please, about what you consider to be your greatest accomplishment. Oh, for goodness sake. Um, <laughs> accomplishment. I know it's so fun, right? <laughs> My greatest accomplishment will be getting out of this industry and finding something more sensible and grown up to do with my life. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think it's happened yet. I mean, it's, oh, oh my goodness. I mean, I, I, <clears throat> I mean, seriously, I suppose it's an accomplishment to still be in this industry after so long. Um, I do have fun. I th actually, I think that's an accomplishment. I, I have a job which I find fun and I've always engineered it to be fun. I've never wanted to climb up the career ladder and indeed when when I've been given people to manage in the past because I used to work for big companies now I work for myself but when, when I've been given people to manage I've always been able to sort of engineer it so that the people I manage actually end up my managers and so I don't have any of that responsibility and I can just do the stuff I enjoy instead um, so I, I think I've done quite well from that regard um, and I'm now in a position where I can choose if I you need to go to a meeting or not, or I can turn down work and say, actually, it sounds a little bit boring. So I won't do that. I'll, I'll go and do something more interesting instead. That, that I think is probably an achievement. And I should probably reflect on that more often and think, yeah, that's good, isn't it? That is quite good. I too have been able to find moments of joy uh, and I'm and I'm I'm in this really fortunate position where similarly I get to say yes to things I want to do and I get to say no to things that I don't want to do. Yeah. Um, so I think that's I really think that's quite a perfect note to end on, you know, for our listeners to say, do more of what you like and less of what you don't. Graham, thank yeah. you so, so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time very much. I've enjoyed this tremendously. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much, Caroline. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen test as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec.